Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web development and design with a little bit of zest. In this episode, we're going to do an open conversation, Amy and I, Q&A. So we are live. We're taking questions from our chat, our audience here. And then we also have some questions that we got from Twitter. So we'll just walk through and have a conversation about anything and everything. Web development and design, who would have guessed? Well, we can do them both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compress. What's up, everyone? My name is James Q. Quick, and I am a full-time technical content creator. Hello, my name is Amy Dutton, and I am the director of design at Zeal. Yay! And we are doing an open <laughs> Q&A conversation stream podcast which we actually just had a great question come in from James Foreman. So we can kick it off with that. I think this is perfect. So James says, I've been studying JavaScript for some time. How does one go about choosing a JS framework? Does it matter? The does it matter, I think, is actually like a very core part of this question. But I'll let you kind of tackle this first if you want to. Oh, it matters. Your life is dependent on this. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to live or die by this decision <laughs> the rest of your career. I don't know that it matters. I'm trying to think. Well, it doesn't matter in the context of what you're trying to do. Let me put it that way. If you're trying to get a job and you want a specific job, sometimes it matters because they might say, you know, react and you don't. So we would have to do on the job training. I'm going to hire the person that does know it. So that would be helpful. But if you're trying to code a project that you just want to build for yourself, not sure it really matters other than the fact of what is your preference and what will allow you to move the fastest. So I wouldn't get hung up on it too much. And honestly, once you know one, a lot of the same principles apply to all of them. And so a lot of it is just getting into the right mental mindset of how these work. And then you can transfer those principles to any of them. I'm pretty much spot on with like both takes of that. Does it matter in terms of hireability? Yeah, somebody asked us something we can argue about. But does it matter in terms of hireability? Absolutely. Like go and look at the jobs in your market, in your area, whether it's like local or it's remote, see what the skills are that they're looking for and go and study that. Like someone today in our Wednesday of the Week conversation inside of Discord was talking about how they were studying testing because they've heard from someone that would give them a leg up in an interview with a specific company based on their experience interviewing for that company. So ultimately, like let that influence what you spend your the most amount of time with. I would say the safest bet, we've said this before, like the safest bet I think is React. That's not me saying it's my favorite framework. I'm just saying that's the safest bet. The biggest ecosystem, the most amount of content, the most amount of jobs I think that you'll see are going to use React. So I think that's the safest bet. It's funny, this is very timely because I actually have a video title already planned that I haven't recorded yet. And it's Next.js versus FeltKit versus Remix or like whatever the frameworks are. And then the other part of the title is it doesn't really matter. And so what's cool and interesting about this is we've seen this evolution in the last eight months specifically of those three frameworks. One of them will do something and the other ones are doing it right behind them. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of actions inside of SvelteKit becoming a thing, the layout structure that SvelteKit did, that Remix had already had, that now Mm Next.js is doing, server component, like all this stuff they're all taking the best from each other and continuing to build on that and incorporate that into their framework. So obviously they do small things differently. They have benefits of more intricate details, certainly, 
but it really doesn't matter. So if you find something, you want to build a side project, you want to learn, go and choose whatever. It's all good. If you are specifically looking to build a skill set for a job, obviously go and do that. But you'll find these parallels. And I think that's the most important part that you can then go and talk about in interviews. Because if they say, Mm -hmm. you know, we're looking for somebody with Next.js experience and you say, I've got Spellkit, you being able to connect those dots for the interviewer to say like, okay, get it. Totally different framework, but they both have front-end code. They both have server-side rendered code. They both have static, statically generated code. If you can do that and show that you understand the principles and the fundamentals and what it's actually doing for you, that's what it comes down to. Because anyone can go and learn syntax of a specific framework, but do you actually understand at a higher level, what are the components, what are the things doing for you, and can you articulate and explain that in an interview? That's the big part for me. Awesome. There's some other questions that have come in, but I think I can tie this one in pretty well. Kelvin did ask, which one are you the most comfortable with so far? For me, it's probably, I guess this answer kind of varies, but probably Next.js. I think it's felt as like, if you just look at front-end framework or library, if you want to debate the terminology, Svelte is my favorite in terms of syntax. I love it. It's the simplest. I think, I think it's absolutely incredible. So that's what I would go with. But when I look at like kind of the meta frameworks, like Remix, Next.js, SvelteKit, I'm probably most familiar with Next.js with the slight caveat of they've now just completely kind of renovated, like overhauled their structure with the app directory and then with React server components. And I'm learning more about server components. I'm excited about them and all that it entails, but it's newer. So I like have a lot of learning to do there, but I would probably say Next.js is the one that I'm most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another piece to consider that we have not talked about when you're talking about frameworks is integrations and trying to layer on all the other pieces. So when we're talking about, say, SvelteKit or Next or Remix or any of these, like, what if you have to layer on testing? And is it easy to layer those things on? Or you Mm. need to layer on Storybook? (laughs) isn't that obvious Uh, for me it um, is (laughs) yeah it is one of my favorites too is redwood because they already offer that to you out of the box so um that is something to consider when you're trying to get up and running is how fast can i get up and running and am i going to spend my wheels trying to get all of the settings and the configurations set up so i am probably ah man it's hard the only thing i'm not really comfortable in is view i've done stuff with view before but Definitely not like an entire view app. I've sprinkled view components in. SvelteKit, I do love their syntax. Um, Next is great. The only thing about Next is there can be a lot of decision fatigue sometimes because you have to decide, is this going to be rendered on the server? Is this going to be like pre-rendered or is this now going to be rendered in the client? I mean, there's so many options and you have to decide how you want to optimize your app. So things like Remix, they say this is the only way that you can do it. And so they make Mm -hmm. some of those decisions for you, which is nice. I'm trying to think of all the other ones. I think those are the main ones I usually reach for. Um, But, you know, like Astro is great, too. We haven't talked at all about Astro because Astro, you can even pick. Do I want to bring in React? Do I want to bring in Svelte? So and plug to James. He's working on an Astro course if you want to check that out. So, I mean, there's... Yeah. And, you know, maybe if you're getting started and you're trying to pick, Astro would be a great place to start because you can use the Astro components and you can pull in Svelte and see what that feels like. And then you can pull in React and see what that looks like. And if you're trying to, say, do a personal site, I would reach for Astro. If you're trying to build out a full-fledged application with a whole JavaScript mm-hmm. backend, I would reach for Redwood. So that's what I mean when it 
you were talking about which one would you reach for, it really depends on your use case. Use case so yeah. It's like a toolbox. Are you going to reach for your hammer or your screwdriver? Well, it depends on what I'm trying to do. Yep, absolutely. I want to really quickly mention the hype that I have for Render ATL, which is coming up in like three <laughs> weeks. So having a baby next Thursday and then her parents no will be deal. here for that. And then I know it's casual. <laughs> and then her mom and grandmother, her Omi, are coming back for when I go to Atlanta for a couple of days for Render ATL. I mentioned this in Discord earlier. Like, I feel like mentally, I need a conference. Like, I almost feel like I'm in withdrawal. Like, I need that inspiration of being around people in the industry, like in person. So, I'm super, super stoked. Anthony, who's in the chat, is going to be there, who I haven't seen since last year, I don't think. Anyway, I am like over the moon, super excited about this. I cannot wait for that. Going back to framework stuff is a follow up question. And we'll come back to Brad's question because I want to make sure we address that. But this one kind of flowed as well. I haven't forgotten about Um, you, Brad. Yeah. Or have we? I don't know. But James also asked, the main reason to render from a server is because of SEO. Is that a correct statement? SEO can be a big part of that. There is also the benefit of like when you get into authentication, Brad and I actually had this discussion the other day, like anything you're doing where you're gating pages, like you're preventing users from going to a certain page or viewing certain content. It is more intuitive, I think, to do that on the server to look at like inspect a cookie or a JWT or whatever before allowing the person to get to that place. And a lot of what doing stuff on the server enables as well is preventing the need for those loading states. So this there's actually like ways to handle that with React server components, which are interesting as well. But specifically, like when you think about a regular front end React application, like just create React app, you load an application then every other thing that you do is like making API calls to like check is the user authenticated to load their blog posts if it's a blog, whatever. And every time you do that, you're having to show this like loading indicator versus if it's a static page or it's on the server, you have the ability to grab that content first, render the page or generate the markup and then send that back down to the user. The Brad is referencing F-O-U-C. I actually didn't know this acronym, but flash of unauthenticated Mm -hmm. content. So that's having to do those loading states all around the application. So in my mind, doing stuff on the server when possible does make a lot of things better from a user experience perspective. It makes it a little, well, from a user perspective, because you're not having to see the loading state. And also from a developer experience perspective, because you're not having to check as many different conditionals on the front end to be able to display and render data. So there's a few different reasons I think that are important. Yeah, Gumroad is a great example of this. So if you load up Gumroad and you'll see a login button and then it'll take a second and the login button will disappear and you'll see a dashboard button. It mm-hmm. drives me a little crazy because you got to wait every time, but that's that flash of authenticated content that you're talking about. So we won't really like dive into this, but like there's these memes going around now or like jokes about JavaScript becoming PHP or like JavaScript adding features and people like PHP, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And it is really <laughs> funny. Like they're like, oh, it's no. the same thing with like, Ruby on Rails, like all these frameworks that did the traditional like SSR stuff, we went completely 180 degrees away with that with the JavaScript ecosystem. And now we're kind of circling back. But Mm -hmm. we also are doing this. And I think this doesn't get enough credit when we make those comparisons. We're doing that, doing this in a very innovative way. So not only like we're kind of using some of these previous standards that we think like, oh, you thought you wanted to move away from them. So we're getting back to those, but we're layering on extra types of functionality for user experience and developer experience that I think sometimes doesn't get the credit for. But it is interesting to see like all the parallels of the way modern JavaScript and frameworks are going mm-hmm. in comparison to existing 
like Laravel as a PHP framework, I think, and Ruby yep. on Rails and that sort of stuff. Well, I mean, there was a point where we were doing everything on the server and then sending these pages off to the browser. And then we started creating these single page applications. And we're like, mm-hmm. we solved all the caching issues. Yay, we're doing <laughs> everything in the browser. <laughs> now it's like, maybe that wasn't as such of a good idea as we thought it would. Let's swing back and I'll do everything on the server. So you can kind of see the pen- pendulum swinging back and forth. And I'm sure we'll eventually land somewhere in the middle. Yep. Yeah, it is really cool to see the evolution of that stuff, I think. Mm-hmm. Anthony in the chat is saying, been knee-deep in PHP and WordPress. There's truly nothing new under the sun. And again, going back to like the differences between yeah. frameworks, like there's only so much actual innovation in the world. <laughs> Some of it's just using... Mm-hmm. I think a lot of innovation comes from using existing stuff in a slightly more creative and different way. I'll put it that way. Yep. Do you want to go back to Brad's question to make yes, sure I we... Do. And I'm going to bring it up, but it might cover our faces. It's so Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I've had a new manager on average every three months at Atlassian. I've had a new team on average every five months. I've been there almost two years and I'm ready for a promotion back to senior dev. However, with the revolving door of managers and teams, it's been nearly impossible to continually impress a single person or crush a single goal. I've been informed that my current manager has no intent to put me up for a promotion at this time. How would you handle this situation? So it's a really good question. It is a great question. And I think this is a very relatable question because I think there's always some situations are more exaggerated. I think like this one than Mm -hmm. others, but there's always like more moving parts that you don't expect. Like you join a company, the person you wanted to work for leaves the person on the team that you wanted to work with leaves. For example, like, that sort of stuff makes a big difference when working at a company. And I think specifically to Brad's point, it's hard to have a feeling of knowing what you're doing, what your priorities are. It's hard to know what are the things, what are the things that are having impact to multiple different people, right? Because different managers are going to have different perspectives on impact. They're going to have different thoughts on like, what are the most valuable pieces on who shows up in different ways, et cetera. That sounds like a mess. That's a lot that amount of movement is just really, really difficult. I think personally, if I were at a point and it's kind of hard to believe Brad's been there two years, like it, I just can't believe that to be honest. (laughs) Personally, if I were at a point where I definitively, and you have to kind of like be really self-reflective and and make sure you really think this. And I think Brad does. And I think he's like a hundred percent. Right. But if you really think that you're in a point to deserve a promotion and it's not there, that's a big cue for me to look elsewhere. Like that may not be the example that, or the answer that people or maybe Brad would be looking for. It may not be the one that other people would jump to as quickly as I would. But the reality is it can be much easier at a new place to get the title and or money or blah, blah, blah that you're looking for. It can be because oftentimes like companies, unfortunately have these quotas on how many people that they can promote and all these requirements. And it like your lack of promotion doesn't necessarily reflect lack of skill or leadership or whatever. It's just the situation. And that's really unfortunate, but that may be the cue or I think it would be for me of like, okay, I need to start looking at other alternatives so that I can continue to progress in my career with these specific things in mind. Yeah. I think there might be a couple of other options or levers you might be able to pull. So I'm curious, you said that your current manager has no intention to put you up for a promotion. I wonder if you could, I don't know what your relationship is with your manager. Like I have a a fantastic, yes. And I have a fantastic relationship with my manager. 
He's also is your manager right listening now right tr- now? Yes. Because yes, earlier you were saying how much listen. you hated your boss, right? <laughs> Isn't that what you said? <laughs> Thanks, James. Maybe that was maybe that was someone else. I'm thinking of. I think that was somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but the, if you can go to your manager and say, "I understand if you can't do this right now because of budget, mm-hmm. because of timelines, because of you know whatever," but help me figure out what a career ladder, a career yeah. plan, a career path is. So that when the situation does change, I'm ready. Um, I've Mm -hmm. referenced this book before I actually finished it, but Engineering Management for the Rest of Us. Sarah Drasner talks in here about part of um, keeping employees happy is helping them understand what their path is, how they can grow and develop. And so she even created, I think it's called careerladders.com to help managers say like, these are steps that we can put in front of somebody to help them grow. And people will rise to the occasion when you set those expectations. And so for you to be able to say, like, if you are able to create a plan with your manager and then just check those goals off and say, yes, I've accomplished everything that you asked me to. I do deserve a promotion. It's not just something that I feel. I actually have the data to come back and say, Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that might be something to consider. Another thing, you know, I don't know if they're rotating every five months, you'll get a new manager in five months that you could have a conversation with. But (laughs) the other question is like, I don't know how departments or politics work at Atlassian. If you have a type of situation where you could go above his head, not that you want to like go around his back, like that could create a really awkward situation. But if the person above is not moving and you can say, Hey, are there other opportunities within the division or within Mm. the department or if this person's going to move after this project's finished, like, and I can have a longer term relationship with you because you're higher up and you're overseeing all these things, can you help me? So, you know, some of it just depends on politics and structure and all the good things that come with working with a larger company. No, I, I don't think I gave justice to what you're saying of like, have the conversation with your manager in a more detailed way. So I'm, I think I responded from the point of like, you've, attempted to have a detailed conversation and it very quickly is like shut down without Mm -hmm. the ability to talk forward about, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to show you? For example. So if that hasn't happened, definitely invest in that, like invest in that relationship and that conversation. Like Amy's saying, I think there's also like one of the things that Brad mentioned is the person said that he hasn't seen Brad perform at that level for long enough, which is not Brad's fault. The that's the difficult situation about being in a situation where managers are coming in and out where you don't have the ability to prove over an expanded period of time. And that's where my skepticism would play into the ability. Like you mentioned, next manager may be the fresh start that you need, but it also could not, right? Like you might get a new manager and be in the same situation. And now they're wanting you to prove over the course of a year. Mm -hmm. And I think Anthony in the chat mentioned this really well. Like you don't have to, it doesn't have to be an immediate, like I walk out the door and I'm done type thing, but you can start, updating your resume, paying attention to what's out there, putting job applications, just see what's out there. That may also give you leverage, right? Like if you go to them and and they really respect you and you say, I've got a job offer to go and and get the X, Y, and Z that I'm looking for, unless you can match that, I'm going to take it. So that could be next opportunity as well, is just taking in, being open to opportunity, seeing what's out there, using that as Mm -hmm. then leverage to potentially negotiate with where you are. But it sounds like, and there's a couple of other details Brad mentioned in the chat. sounds like there's some concerns, like smaller red, different smaller red flags that mm-hmm. um, my advice would be leaning towards at the very least being open and kind of looking, yeah. looking to see what's out there. 
Yep. Weighing your options. It's always a balancing. Yeah. <clears throat> there is another or another message in here from Mark. Personally, I never really cared about titles. It's always been more about am I growing, et cetera. And I, th- I think that's something to consider too. So Brad mentioned like probably shouldn't have joined this role at a level below what I deserved. And so there is a perspective for me of the level really doesn't matter. Like to a certain extent it does. And there's some pride that comes with like a certain title. Definitely understand. I think the biggest thing for me that would be important is does that lack of title hold me back from visibility as an IC? Does it hold me back Mm -hmm. specifically from money? Like, is this the thing where to make more money, you have to get to the next level and you can't get to the next level because of the situation that we've been talking about. Those are things that add some urgency to the fact that I think things need to change, if that makes sense. So if that title, if it's something that you really care about, that's totally fine too. If it's something that's holding you back for other things that you want to accomplish in your career, specifically money, absolutely that that for me adds urgency to to look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And and Brad yeah. mentioned that it's starting to reflect on who is getting picked to lead projects. Again, going back to mm. to levels of responsibility, visibility, that sort of stuff, absolutely would add urgency and importance to the title for me. Yeah. What's interesting in terms of titles, I put a post out on LinkedIn and Twitter yesterday all about titles and had a Mm, really interesting conversation yesterday about titles. And it's strange because it's in some respect, titles don't mean as much to me, but in some ways they do. It's like you're talking about there is an element of pride. The fact that I do have say director in my title, but there's another piece of it where I'm like director of design that doesn't communicate half of what I do. I'm also a full stack engineer. And Mm -hmm. so there's a piece of being okay with the fact that my title is director of design and not whatever thing engineer, or the conversation came out of, this is what a UI designer is. This is what a UX designer is. This is what a product designer is. And it's like, okay, we're assuming that we're all operating out of the same definitions. And Brad, I actually referenced you in the post, even though I didn't name you, but I remember you talking about how you went to Atlassian, you took a lesser title. And it's not that your skill set changed overnight. It's not that you like woke up and had lost knowledge or anything like that. It's just that the titles and how they rank everything was different at Atlassian than your previous company. So it's really hard to rely on a title to communicate all those things, especially when we're working from different definitions. One of my favorite quotes that I've said, I love to quote myself and be really proud of it. (laughs) Is <laughs> I know, isn't, isn't it ridiculous? <laughs> is different companies value you differently? When I was mm-hmm. at FedEx, I ended FedEx making ninety thousand dollars. Same person, same skill set. Overnight, went to all zeros, starting out at one hundred twenty thousand, so increase of salary, unlimited vacation, infinitely more inspirational teammates, and all these things. Overnight, same person, mm-hmm. same skill set, different company. Ended that at whatever so like we can talk about salaries later on if people are really interested but over the course of like two and a half years almost tripled my salary and it's because different companies will value you differently and that's always why at least having the option at least being open to consider opportunities and kind of putting yourself out there i think is really really huge yeah this i want to highlight this mainly because it's my manager (laughs) (laughs) the one that you were saying you love so much (laughs) oh that one Uh, jason was saying if you can empathize with how they might be processing what's Mm -hmm. going on and can help partner with them they might be more open kind of 
you help me, I help you type of thing. So again, it depends on your manager. Jason and I have a great relationship. So (laughs) we help each other out. That is like in in a marriage and a work relationship that like Mm -hmm. almost all struggles come from there's some piece of their perspective that you just don't have. And maybe it's them not sharing it with you. Maybe it's you not listening. But almost all those conversations come down to there's a part of that. Like some people are just assholes. But almost all the time it comes down to there's some perspective that they have or some experience that they have or some time that they've been burned in the past or something like that, that you're just missing. And it may or may mm-hmm. not be anybody's fault. It's just context that's not there. Yeah. Um, My dad has always said, you work for managers, not companies, which is true. I've, yeah. you know been part of a company that I was like, meh, it's all right, but I've loved my manager. So Mm -hmm. been willing to stick around far longer because I appreciate that and value that working relationship. Yeah. We're going to do a complete 180, but this is a fun question that I thought would be good. So Landon Mm -hmm. on YouTube is asking, would you recommend Prisma over vanilla Postgres functions? I actually have to clarify this in my head. Does it speci- does Landon specifically mean Postgres functions or just like writing raw SQL versus using Prisma? I'm going to interpret it as like mm-hmm. writing raw SQL versus Prisma. Do you have an opinion on? I do know Postgres has functions built into it because I've used it with Supabase where you can have it calculate things for you mm-hmm. on the fly in terms of, hey, add these columns together. So but I feel like I've seen people talking more recently about like, why have all these abstractions? Why not just write raw Postgres mm-hmm. or SQL queries? I love Prisma. <laughs> yep. It does make it so much easier. I will say though, that they are running multiple calls under the hood. So if you're in a pinch, like James talks frequently about working at FedEx and having to process packages in milliseconds of time, you might need those performance considerations for mm-hmm. using SQL or Postgres functions. If not, like Prisma just makes it a lot easier, but that's also my own personal preference speaking. Yeah. And this definitely, I'm very similar. This definitely comes from a perspective of not being really not having significant database experience. And this is ironic coming from working at a database company, but like I've never been a deep database person and I don't really care to be. So I like ORMs as the general term for this object relational mapping, I believe. So I certainly would use Prisma. I would say there are concerns at scale that people have of getting into a specific query that you need and the way that Prisma would do it with its built-in functions just isn't very performant versus being able to control that with raw SQL yourself. My personal opinion would be like bring that in, use Prisma. There's a couple of benefits I'll come back to in a second, but use Prisma for your queries until you hit this limitation of like now I need to go and write this custom thing because not that many people have deeper database SQL knowledge and maybe you argue like they should, I don't know, but like use the abstraction. And then when you need to go beyond that, you can actually pass. I don't know what the format is for this, but in almost all ORMs, you can pass a raw SQL string and just tell it like execute Mm -hmm. the SQL. So you still have that as like a backdoor option Mm -hmm. when you need it. Now, the other thing though, like even aside from making queries through Prisma, the ability to track your schema and migrations in your code base is very, very powerful. So Mm -hmm. you could use Prisma just for that and then write raw SQL using whatever SQL client you wanted if you wanted to have full control over SQL but still have Prisma manage 
your data schema migrations. I think that is a combination that people could look Mm -hmm. at as well. And let me just explain what a migration is. So if I make a change to my local database and I'm working with another developer, they need to make the same change to their local database. So a migration is a file that says, hey, Amy made this change. So then the next time they run a migration on their computer, it'll make that same change to their database. Yeah, so it's really helpful that you can keep track of all those and it's all in source control. I did want to highlight Eric's comment because this is good too. Like most ORMs, Prisma allows you to iterate much quicker, but you need to be aware of the performance bottlenecks. So if you're, I think James said this, but also just to reiterate, if you're trying to say build out a prototype and see if it's working, you could maybe do that a lot faster in Prisma and then come back and iterate. You know, what's what's wild and embarrassing. So you just said, Eric, username is Gooseman. That's what I see him as like everywhere. (laughs) I wasn't super confident about this, but I would have guessed Alex and Eric. Now I <laughs> apologize because I've known I'm like, it's just always been goose. And I don't, I hope uh-huh. I haven't said Alex. Publicly. Oh, don't you love those? Like, <laughs> I, no, uh, I hate also, this. It's literally I my worst fear in the world. You can't see this because it's very tiny, but his avatar, he is sitting in a jet like, mm. oh, why did it leave me? I shouldn't have started saying it. What's the movie? Uh, Top Gun. Thank you. Top Gun, yeah. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Bottom arrow. <laughs> Everybody in the chat got it. <laughs> I know. Oh, freak. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is my awesome manager that I was talking about. <laughs> so amazing. There's a follow-up comment from Bearded Programmer, which is Corey, person local. He was in our Wins of the Week session this morning. And this is such a great comment from him and timely because he and his Wins of the Week earlier shared this like deeper SQL issue that he had. And he was naming like, sub queries and joins and it, like I was like that sounds like you did a great job and I don't really know these things <laughs> from a SQL perspective so it's really timely that he added this but he said that he uses JPA Hibernate which is in the Java Java ecosystem ORM and said having the ability to execute custom SQL is also necessary to his point so you get down to those specific use cases the performance just doesn't match what you need you can go and, and write your own query when you get to it and probably there's one person on your team that people lean on that actual actually have like deeper SQL knowledge, which would not be me. Uh, but yeah, I completely agree. I think the speed and the comfort level that you get with an ORM, mm-hmm. use that as, as basically as much as you can until you need to break out of it and then do that. Yep. And I'll also highlight, if you're working with Prisma, VS Code has an extension for working with Prisma that the auto IntelliSense, all the that good juiciness is fantastic. Yep, 100%. We touched on this earlier, but maybe we can specifically address these. So uh, someone is asking, I'm looking to learn a front-end framework. What should my choice be, React or Angular? General advice for me is React. Again, this mm-hmm. is not me saying it's the best framework in the world. This is me just looking at like hireability jobs that are out there. The caveat to this, Angular is a very popular framework, like much more so than I think we give it credit for from a Twitter and like lack of a better word influencer perspective, because React and Svelte and other new things are kind of like the hotness versus Angular is not looked at that way. Angular is also awesome, by the way. So the caveat to my answer is you can make an informed decision about this. We've talked about this before, of which one of those makes more sense based on the companies and the jobs that you want to apply for. So there are lots of stereotypically bigger enterprise companies that are more likely, again, stereotype, to use Angular. So if those are the companies that you're interested in, 
learn Angular and be prepared for that job interview versus a different one that may focus on a different or a different set of roles and companies that may focus on different frameworks. Yep. Ditto. No. <laughs> Question from Digi on Twitch. Are there SQL management studio plugins? I think the answer to this may not be like, I don't know, or maybe I don't know. SQL management studio plugins to help you rapidly iterate across data. Yes, you can search for data, but I'd be able, it'd be great to be able to reorder, isolate data on the fly and the old school local DBs and access. I, now that I bring this up and read the whole thing, I don't have an answer <laughs> to like, this, unfortunately. <laughs> but I, the thing I will add though, is there are, I don't know SQL management studio specifically, but there are mm-hmm. lots of different SQL and Postgres and name your database clients that are really good. So I would just do, I would do some search for like Postgres clients, for example, if you're using Postgres and just see what's out there. Cause I know there's been more of those popping up that do more of these types of things. And this is why we see platforms like Superbase and AppWrite mm-hmm. and Zeta. We see these platforms pop up with UIs around your data because it makes so much sense because people go elsewhere to download a tool to be able to visualize their data. It's not that we never needed to, we just had to do something else to do it. So anyway, I think there's probably options out there for you to consider. I don't know what they are. This is not a space that I'm like well-versed in. I would just give a search for like modern clients for whatever database you're working with. Eric suggested data grip. Data grip. Mm -hmm. He said it's great, but not free. Digi also did comment on Angular versus React. Their general advice is Angular. If the company uses it, then it's a slam dunk to learn. This may be considered like a downside or a bright side. Angular was the first framework to come like specifically targeting TypeScript. And the downside of that is there's like more that you have to learn if you're new to get into Angular's because you have to learn TypeScript versus React and Vue and Svelte were not TypeScript first, although now all of these frameworks have a TypeScript option where you can set it up when you create your project and have that be ready to go. That said, again, additional advice, I'd recommend people learn TypeScript. TypeScript is growing Mm -hmm. in popularity every single day, and it seems like it is a list item on requested knowledge in job job applications or job postings more and more. Here's a fun one. Best resources for JavaScript and React. One of my favorite resources is Level Up Tutorials. And now that Scott has sold that to Century, all of those tutorials are free. So go check that out. I actually have a course on there. And so does James. So James has one on Firebase. I have one on Keystone. So obviously those are slightly different than what you're talking about, but they are JavaScript. So go check it out. It's free. Another great resource is Wes Boss. I love his tutorials. He does a great job. He has Two specifically that I can think of, one for React for Beginners, and then another one where it's Advanced React. And I actually think his Advanced React one is using Keystone as well. Those are probably the two places that I would start. But, oh, Josh Komu has one called The Joy of React. I think that one's still in beta or pre-release that is good. And then Mm. Kent C. Dodds has another one. I think that one's called Epic React. And I can include links to all those in the chat. Yep. A couple other ones to add. So Udemy is hit or miss, but if you find a highly reviewed piece of content on a given topic, Udemy is like the thing that I used in changing my career basically into web development. The Web Developer Bootcamp by Colt Steele was one, teach you everything you need to know to be a full stack JavaScript developer. Absolutely incredible. 
Andrew Mead is, I say a friend of mine, we've like chatted a couple of times and he's been on my stream, but we've never met in person, but he did has several bigger courses on Udemy, including the one that taught me react. So he is really amazing. I won't share the affiliate link unless people are specifically interested because I'm not trying to plug stuff right now, but I just got signed up as an affiliate for zero to mastery and they have a bunch of awesome content. I believe on Kita, who's in our Discord, has some content with them on Next.js, I believe. But I've always, I haven't taken their content myself, but I've always heard really good things about their content as well. Someone in the chat, Digi, mentioned Traversy Media on YouTube, and mm-hmm. he has courses on Udemy as well. So he is really great. Daryl is mentioning for JavaScript, anything and everything by Kyle Simpson and Will Sentence. I don't know Will Sentence. I will say Kyle Simpson is like one of the biggest names in the mm-hmm. JavaScript ecosystem for like really learning JavaScript. So definitely a huge resource as well. There's so many, so many amazing names out there. And Kyle also has some stuff on front end masters, which is another good one. Mm. Front end masters is another one. Egghead mm-hmm. is another one. Like there's mm-hmm. no shortage of amazing con- content. I was going to say opportunities and content at the same time. Amazing resources for learning web development, which is one of the things that I am most excited about and being a developer and specifically a web developer is the fact that there are so many different amazing places to find all the resources that you need to literally transition careers. Like it's a, it's not an easy thing mm-hmm. to do, but there are plenty of resources out there to transition your career without having to go to college, without having to do a bootcamp, et cetera. Last thing I'll mention from a bootcamp perspective, but different is a hundred mm-hmm. devs. So 100 mm-hmm. devs is a free one that you can go through all of their content. And I love that they also focus on things in addition to the tech, which is reaching out to people and having coffee chats, for example. So they talk about the importance of like all these other supplementary, complementary skills and relationships that have tremendous impact on getting a first job and progressing in your career. So shout out to 100 devs as well. I was just going to read Brittany's post. She mentioned learn React from zero to mastery course. Mm-hmm. And I would say if you start doing something, you pick one of these things that I mean, pick wherever you want to start and it doesn't make sense. That's okay. That doesn't mm-hmm. say anything about you and your ability to learn or not learn. It just means that the way that that person explained it, it didn't click. So nope. find another one and go through that. And honestly, that's one of the best hacks that I've learned or picked up to be able to learn something new is just to try and pull all these other resources together see how everybody explains it. And then it's like some people will say some things, some people will say other things and together it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Nibby also mentioned Fireship, one of my very favorite channels mm-hmm. on YouTube. He has amazing content. Also asked me if I'm going to collab with him again. So the what I did with him was a sponsor video through All Zero. So we sponsored him to do a video. And then as part of that, I got to record the actual demo of incorporating all zero into a react. I can't remember if it was react or specifically Next.js at the time. I don't know, but his content is absolutely amazing. I'm a big fan of his. One thing I'd say, if you have those devs that work with the heart of a teacher and that gets you over a bind, take care of them, stick with them long enough and you'll become someone that wants to spread knowledge to others as well. I helped a new programmer understand unit testing yesterday and it got me so pumped and like, I'll take this, I'll add on to that in a slightly different direction. I think this is one of the most important things for people to ask about going into new opportunities, specifically early in your career, is what does mentorship look like? How am I going to be supported as a new and learning developer? Because a lot of people, a lot of companies 
aren't intentional about how they teach junior developers, a lot of senior developers don't care to teach junior developers. This has always been something that I've been passionate about. Like I'm really excited when someone new starts so that I can teach them and work with them and help them kind of build their skill set. A lot of people are not like that. A lot of people don't want to do that. So that is one of the most important things I think to ask about culturally from a company or of a company when you're doing interviews, especially as a junior or like early on career developer, how am I going to be supported? What sort of support system is there in place for me to grow and learn and be able to contribute? Oh, can I pick out a question? Yes. Uh, What do you think about (laughs) AI taking developer jobs? Nice and spicy. We're we're screwed. I, it, (laughs) It's just, just stop. Don't even bother learning any of this. Stuff. Yeah. Well, there is. It's interesting because I feel like people learning are having what they think are reasonable hesitations about continuing to learn. Sure. And I understand the like initial reaction of that. And this is actually a perfect fix. I'm giving giving a talk titled AI is revolutionizing developer experience. Are you ready? I'm giving that talk in Toronto over the summer and plan on giving that more. And it's one that I'm particularly excited about. And the thing that Amy and I have talked about is AI is an enabler, just like any other innovation in developer experience. Like you think about when Netlify was first available and it's like, what I can just connect to a GitHub repo and like my site is hosted. And you think about adding serverless functions, what I can like not have to deploy a full backend. And now I have backend functionality, like the gates keep getting lower because developer experience keeps getting better for developers to create more easily, to create more parts of the stack, more parts of the process, more parts of all of this stuff than ever before. So AI is influencing that. AI is an enabler that allows us to build more, continue to build more than we ever have before. Does it replace a developer? Not anytime soon. Does it change and augment the way we build stuff? Absolutely. And it already is definitively. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't take it doesn't take developer jobs away at all. Yeah. I one hundred percent agree with that. We're just gonna be looking at more augmented roles. And honestly, mm-hmm. whenever I've looked at Chat GPT or any of these, even copilot, copilot to me is one of the best in terms of writing code. Mm-hmm. I still have to read it. I still have to know what's happening and troubleshoot it. And it's probably with ChatGBT, at least, it's usually right about 50% of the time. So I still have to know. Brad had said a while back that I think just it does a good job of kind of like packaging it all up is that when you're using tools like GitHub Copilot or ChatGPT, your job shifts from writing code to reading code. And both skills are equally viable. Yeah. And you have to be able to make that approval. Right. Mm-hmm. Like they give you something and you have to go and confirm whether or not that something will do the job. And someone asked me mm-hmm. earlier, as a junior developer, do you recommend I use GitHub Copilot? And I specifically don't recommend using GitHub Copilot if it if the code that it generates is not already something you could have written yourself or and or specifically understand yourself. If it's writing code that you already do understand, that you already um, could have written. Yes, absolutely. Let that be the enabler that just does part of it for you so that you can move faster. But if that becomes a crutch to your learning, you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. There was a I question. Like oh, go ahead. This one. Because it's, it's paid. Thank you. Question. That's By the way, right. Yeah. Thank you for the contribution. We haven't had many. I say we. This is 
money that goes to me. It's been very minimal money. So I don't think like, I don't think it's a problem yet. But if, if we start having lots of these, then we need to have a conversation. But this is like one of three total I think that we've had. Take a hint. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Start paying more money so Amy can get some. (laughs) But Cody, thank you for the support. I genuinely Mm -hmm. appreciate that. And Cody's comment is, what do you think is the largest hurdles for beginners trying to learn JavaScript and React motivation, breadth of what there is to learn, imposter syndrome, etc. I can speak from personal experience when I was trying to go from jQuery to React. And a huge part of you it is there's jQuery? been... <laughs> yes, I did. All the time. Not that uh, long ago. When... <clears throat> I know. One of the things that I struggled with that I think is still a concern is that because the JavaScript ecosystem changes so much, that there's outdated code on Stack Overflow or forums or blog posts. And so when you're trying to learn something new and they do a good good job of explaining it, but it's wrong and outdated code. And you're like, I don't know why it doesn't work. Like, this is the way that I learned. It's hard sometimes, I think, to know what is current and what is best practice and trying to maintain all those things. I'll jump in from my like teaching perspective. So I've taught two rounds of a boot camp that started at 160 people both times and ended with like 50 to 60 that, that finished the program. But this is people starting from scratch with programming. So a couple of things, and this is regardless of it being JavaScript specific, just like people looking to learn, I think making the transition, whether you go through a boot camp, whether you self teach to learning the program in pursuit of that as a career is one of the hardest things that people will ever like hard, one of the hardest things you'll ever do in your life. It is significantly challenging not to scare anybody away because the re- the reality is it is one of the most rewarding things that you can also do in your life and enable like so many different things from money, from work-life balance, from culture, from all these things. But it is one of the hardest things that you can do. And a lot of where I see people struggle in boot camps is where they're scared to ask questions. Understandably, almost all of us at times are scared to ask questions. If you don't force yourself to move beyond that, you're probably going to struggle, unfortunately, because once you don't ask a question, then you feel bad that you have the question later on and you don't ask again. And then you continue to make that a habit and you fall further behind. So that is a significant struggle for people. A lot of that is stemming from imposter syndrome. So the stuff that I recommend people do is really invest in the people around you. If you're in a boot camp scenario, find a couple of the people that you really resonate with ask questions to them in a safe environment, ask people questions that you trust. Someone reference our Learn, Build, Teach Discord server. I hope that that is an amazing resource for people. That's absolutely the goal. I think that it is. But find whatever your safe place is to ask those questions, whether it's an individual, whether it's a Discord community, whether it's a Slack group, whatever it is, find those resources and invest in that. The other thing I we talk about all the time is investing in your community, just being out there, seeing what other people are talking about, getting inspiration from what other people are doing. That part is huge. Now, the maybe JavaScript and potentially React specifically, getting slightly more specific. I think if you're self-teaching, the overwhelmingness of all the things that you could learn is very hard to stay focused and to progress through something that's going to give you skills that are hireable. That's why I'm a big advocate of following at least some of the courses from some from places that we've referenced already. I go back to the web developer bootcamp by Cold Steel on Udemy, which is like definitively for me, if you go through that and you understand all the things that 
that you do in that course, you are definitively ready to be hired as a full stack developer because it teaches you all of those pieces. If you were to try to piece all those things together from random YouTube videos, that would be a significant challenge. So I think support system, community, people that you trust to ask questions, having some sort of structure, whatever that is, whether it's a course or you get an outline from, you reach out to me and say, hey, I want to be this kind of developer. I can give you learn this, 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 and this. Like some sort of structure makes all the difference in the world. But as, as best as you can prevent it, ask questions, get advice from people, get feedback from people. That's just, if you're not able to move past the fear of asking those questions, which is understandable, I think it's going to be very difficult. That's a great point. And yeah, ciphering through outdated content or just content that's not specifically mm-hmm. relevant for people, for jobs that people may be interested in is definitely a challenge. You know, another thing I was looking back at, all the things that Cody listed out, breadth of what there is to learn. Sometimes it's hard to know where to start with everything. Mm-hmm. Do I start with C- CSS? Do I start with HTML? Do I start yeah. with functional components or class components or server components? And trying to yeah. figure out all those models can sometimes be difficult. And I think you know the point that you made in terms of finding a course that has tried to at least outline those in a way that's there, logical yeah. and makes sense is helpful. Yeah. There's a question from Carlos saying, I'm using the Mern stack as a student. Nice. Um, Any Mm -hmm. advice to deploy my application? This is where deploying things gets slightly more difficult when you have a full node backend. And the alternative to that, like the reason I clarify full node backend, is you can run node in a serverless environment through Next.js, through SvelteKit, through, I don't think Angular may or may not have that, I'm not sure, like in a meta framework on top of it. Remix, et cetera. Like they are, they kind of take those abstractions away from you so that it makes it very easy to deploy to something like Netlify and Vercel. There are specific options that are geared towards supporting deploying a full node application. So my go-to for a long time was Heroku on there. I ended up paying for the Learn, Build, Teach Discord bot, but now they don't have a free tier anymore. So I personally wouldn't recommend them for people that are in your position because I don't think you should have to pay to start. So we also have part of our compressed FM backend is in a full node backend and it's deployed to render. So I've had like mixed result when I first started getting into render. It's worked really well since then. And then there's also a few other ones, fly.io, railway is another. So I would just do a quick search for like, well, if you're looking for just like an easy answer to take away from here, go check out render. I think it's probably the easiest thing to do to deploy a node backend. If you're looking for other options, fly.io, what was the other one I just said? Railway. So there's a couple of a good railway, options out yeah. there. Yeah. That you can go and and check out. But you'll have to find one of those platforms that specifically supports a full node environment, not just running JavaScript slash node and serverless functions. Question from Landon. Does Vercel use AWS under the hood? I don't know that one specifically, although I'm fairly confident. Amy is saying yes as well. Yes. That yes, they are using AWS under the hood. I know, I definitively know Netlify serverless functions, for example, are using serverless functions in AWS under the hood. And that is a lot of what, uh, it's a lot of what you'll see. Like probably a lot of these hosting platforms are using the infrastructure of these mega cloud platforms like AWS, Google Cloud, for example, behind the scenes. What they do is take that functionality and make it easier to use and work with as a developer. So they build on top of that and, and improve the developer experience because AWS is kind of a mess because of the fact that it can do everything. 
that it's overwhelming to do the specific thing that you're looking for. So a lot of these platforms are just building on top of that to make it easier and more streamlined for developers to work with those services. I was trying to find a, a resource for that, but Vercel has recently announced a ton of new features that are really in mm-hmm. partnership with other companies, which yep. is kind of interesting. Fiddy asks, what if you just set up your own VPS server? Does anyone do that? Not something that I do. This is where something like AWS, you have access to like, I just want to run my own VM and do it that way. There's a lot of management things that come into that, especially for someone that's a beginner. I highly would recommend not doing that and stick with like the most abstracted hosting platforms unless you want to specifically get into DevOps or something like that to understand more about what's going on behind the scenes. If you have your heart set on running your own server, I would look at DigitalOcean because they even have features where you can point it to your repo and then it'll make assumptions based on the technology that's used in the repo mm-hmm. for setting up the server. So especially if you're brand new to the space and not sure what you need to install, they have some great service services that are pre-configured. Question from Bearder Programmer. Have lots of procedures, functions stored in a database, but no test DB. I'm considering adding a Git repository for tracking, tracking changes over time. Are there any recommendations or is there any recommendation or gotchas to consider? I don't think I have a very helpful answer to this. Yeah. I think tracking changes in a repo is certainly helpful. Like I would mm-hmm. absolutely want to have access to that. Going back to something we talked about earlier, which are schema migrations migrations will give you that record as well. So if you were to use something like Prisma, or I think you're in the Java ecosystem, they may have something like that to support migrations and store the migration changes inside of your code base. I'm not sure, but that is definitely an option that I think would be useful if you were looking for something a little more formal than just like copying and pasting in schema changes in a set of files in a GitHub repo each time. Mm -hmm. I don't, does Prisma support test DBs out of the box? Or is that something you have to configure? Uh, yeah. well, I guess I don't. Does test DB mean something specific in this case? Like you can change which D- database you're connecting to in different environments mm-hmm. by changing the connection string. So you could work locally with a MySQL database. And then when you deploy it, have it be connected to planet scale or whatever else. Well, I guess technically, like in a perfect setup, you'd almost have three databases. Because you'd have one for production, one for staging, and then kind of what, I guess staging could also be like a branch database is like what we were talking about with Zeta or something like Mm -hmm. that. So if I had a branch in GitHub with certain code changes, then you would want to see a database Mm -hmm. with those code changes. Because if you made those changes to a staging database and decide not to merge that code in, it's going to mess up your staging database. So I guess that's a good point where the more would come in. But then you also can use a test database where anytime you run through your tests, it can create Mm. certain pieces of data so that when you're running those tests, you know for sure that that entry should be in the database. So I think, so yeah, if you're meaning test as in like an environment where you're running Mm -hmm. tests, it would just be another instance of a database. Absolutely. So that would just be the connection string that changes, which again goes back to the really cool thing with this Zeta integration with Vercel Mm -hmm. is as that happens, Zeta is updating some sort of data inside of that specific deployment in Vercel to point to this new branch that you created and or that it created automatically for you. So that is like super, super cool to have that stuff already just taken care of. And then it deletes, like after you close that PR, it closes that, 
code bra- or database branch as well. So it's a really neat workflow. Yeah. The bearded programmer, this isn't going to help you if you are running on Java, but since I mentioned Redwood earlier, we episode number 75, we walk through CI CD pipeline that we set up at Zeal for working with Redwood and Render, where you get all of the features that I just described. Yep. Here's one for you. What are your key takes on React to Next? Next.js. Talking about like getting rid of the create React app. I just that, interpreted it however. I don't know. <laughs> Any thought? Like, I'll give you one. Or Would the you app directory? Yeah. I maybe start with like, oh, going from React to Next. Oh, so React like, to Next. So Next should is you using React. Advice, right? maybe. Yes. Yeah. So Next, you're still going to use React in all of your Next files. One of the best things, maybe, that Next gives you is being able to handle your routes and you're caching a lot of the infrastructure. And that's really the main difference between say Next and Remix or Redwood or any of these other ones that we've listed is that they're going to handle your routing differently. So the nice thing we have, we've been pushing React, but if you learn React, then it makes it even easier to go from each of these frameworks because they all are using React under the hood. In terms of Next specifically, there's some decision fatigue. We talked about this briefly earlier, but when you're trying to decide, okay, do I want this to be rendered on the server and delivered as soon as the user makes a call, or do I want it to be pre-rendered so that there's basically a static file that's waiting, or do I want it to be server components? Like you have to consider all of those things. I was recently working on a demo project where we were, I was trying to build it within the app directory. And I think the app directory piece is still in beta. Um, It is now stable. It is stable. Made some changes though. They made some changes, I think. Oh, they did. That I don't know. Okay. Was, okay. okay. I'll have to double check that. Don't take my word for it. But there were some things that were a little different than how I've been used to writing code, some additional decisions that I had to make. So if you're talking about server components, you can't have used state and server components. You have to explicitly say that this will run on the client. And so at the top of your file, you write use client. So there's some nuances there in terms of rendering and just how you want to manage pieces that you have to think through. So I kind of like the app directory, but there were some weird things when you're talking about getting data on the server and then passing it over to the client that were a little surprising. It wasn't quite as seamless as I thought it would be. Yeah, I think if people, if you learn React and you're looking for like something to learn next, I think <laughs> next makes a lot of sense. <laughs> It is a great way to get introduced now to full stack slash backend fundamentals if you haven't already done that sort of thing. So I highly recommend, like I think Next.js is a valuable thing to learn, even if I think it's much more likely that people are using specifically React and not Next.js at companies, like much more often than not, although I think that's going to continue to change. Next is next, absolutely. So there... <laughs> I. the one thing that gets a lot more complicated now, like if people create a new Next.js app by default, and they get the app directory with React server components, that's introducing a very, a barrier to entry for people that I think is kind of hard to overcome for beginners because alternative or previous to that, you create a new Next.js application, you take advantage of built-in routing, like, all right, this file is here. It's going to create a route for me. That's fairly standard, fairly standard to understand, like fairly straightforward. Mm -hmm. 
And then you could just write React. So you wouldn't have to use Git server-side props. You wouldn't have to use Git static props. You don't have you didn't have to use any of that to start doing React, which I think was a benefit. You get you get a few niceties that come with it, but you can still just write client-side React. Now with React Server components, if I don't think it's the default yet, but if it becomes the default with a new Next.js application, the barrier to entry, I think, becomes a lot higher for people because they're having to understand when and where and how code is being run, server versus mm-hmm. client, and make decisions based on that. And that's a lot for people if they don't already have that experience. Yeah. There's also some interesting things there happening with like nested layouts that you've got to think through. And yes. At that point, your directory structure has huge implications mm-hmm. for your routes, and it does get a little bit more complicated. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how all that goes. Oh, look at that. <laughs> Another. Wow. What? So this one is going to be really funny. So shout out again to Cody for yeah. the donation. I don't know, for the support, <laughs> financial support. This is a really interesting question for me. And I'll start by saying I definitively have no idea. So the question is, can you please <laughs> explain? For your money, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. And again, if there's like, if you want to do follow-up <laughs> questions to help me help you, I'm happy to do that. But the question is, how do, can you please explain how to think in a declarative way? Imperative makes more sense to me step by step, but I can't seem to think declaratively. I have no idea what the difference in those two are. Like those are terms that have been thrown around in computer science classes for me. I have never in my life understood what declarative versus imperative means. And if you can help clear that up, and maybe you can or cannot, I don't know. But if someone gave me a definition as to the difference between those, I could help answer the question. But I still to this day have no idea what those two things actually mean and imply. Okay, so this is a two article. It says declarative programming is describing what the program does without explicitly specifying its control form or flow. Imperative programming is describing how the program should do something by specifying each instruction or statement step by step. This still sounds very similar. <laughs> if and that's what he said, imperative is step by step. So what the program still, does, are you talking yeah. about like the high level business logic for something? So yeah, if you want to actually have a follow-up question, that would be helpful. So when you're talking about like what the program should do, like the business logic for it, a lot of times if you're working with a PM or your stakeholders, they'll help define a lot of that. <clears throat> yeah, so imperative, this is from Nibby. Imperative is a set of instructions like a recipe. Declarative is describing what it is or should be. So a lot of times, if I'm understanding correctly, a lot of times the story that you get. So if you're working with a project manager, they'll have a set of requirements that they get from the stakeholder. So say like a user has to be able to log in. That's probably more of a declarative thing that this is what it should be. Then the PM will break it. Am I right? I'm kind of going on a limb here. But the PM will help break those things down. And there's still to some sense going to be like declaring those things because when you write a story, it shouldn't be prescriptive. They shouldn't tell you exactly what you should do, but they should say like, these are the things that in order for us to pass, in order for the te- the story to be accepted, these are the requirements that it has to have. So mm-hmm. maybe those are, this can be as specific as a password needs to have 10 characters and a capital letter and a symbol and all that. Or, you know, just some of it depends on, if you're using Auth0, it could be, let's just have Auth0 implementation with our, login flow. 
But then your job as a developer is to take those requirements that you're given and then break those down even further to be able to implement the story. Um, I, I think I think there's implications in how this comes into play with code specifically. And that's where I specifically can't answer. But when we think about what you're saying and what everyone's kind of agreeing on with the idea of declarative of like, here's what needs to be done versus imperatives going and actually doing the thing or like deciding on how we do the thing. I think probably a helpful aspect of this is most of us don't spend enough time thinking about what we're doing before we do it. So -hmm. if you find yourself like, I've got an idea and you start writing code immediately, that's probably a red flag for you to spend more time actually thinking about what am I trying to accomplish? Trying to think through edge cases. This is specifically valuable for like, whiteboarding interviews, like talking out loud, here's what we want to do, asking clarifying questions, thinking about edge cases, thinking about all the things that you need to do and accommodate for in the code that you're going to write before going to write it. And I think it one is just being intentional about that. Again, the habit of mine as well is to just start writing code and try to solve a problem without spending that time beforehand thinking. The other aspect of this that I think is really important As a developer, you talked about like the business or a PM or a business analyst. Business analysts are people that are going to understand here's how this whole system works. So like in the FedEx situation, I was writing code where if a package had this barcode, it would need to do this, 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 and this before we make a decision on where it goes. The business analyst would know what those different use cases were and why they were important to the business and why we had them. And I think a missed opportunity by a lot of developers is not understanding the business logic, not understanding the why behind what we're doing. So I think part of that is asking those questions beforehand. Part of that is spending time with BAs and other experts in that ecosystem or that that workplace or whatever it is to understand more of the business requirements and specifically why they're there to then translate that into code that we actually write. Yeah, Eric also had a great point here. He was saying the answer is it depends. That's always the perfect answer when it comes to development. But if you're using a functional programming language, you have to think more declarative, whereas in object oriented, you have to think more imperative. You actually know, you actually have to know what to use with which context. So the way that (laughs) I'll explain it, (laughs) I'll explain it. So we don't do a ton of object oriented programming right now with the way that JavaScript is right now. When we start using functional components where you just say const and then the name of the component and then whatever it is, that is more leans more towards functional programming at that point because you are creating functions that will do a specific task. So object-oriented is more of like a class component structure, which we used to use with React. And you can think of classes like, this is like a classic example when you're talking about a car, A car is a class. It's going to have four wheels. So you have different properties that describe the car. A car can run. It can park. You know, these different actions that are, (laughs) if you have a good car, a working car. But the point is, there are certain things that describe that car. And so you think about an instance of that differently than if you do with a functional component where you're just saying, do this, do this, do this, or process this thing and trying to break those down into the smallest functions possible. Did I, Eric, correct me. <laughs> I think we should just bring Eric on. Yeah. <laughs> Eric the, has a computer science degree, so I'll defer to you and him <laughs> more than... Well, again, like I, the concepts of object-oriented programming versus functional, 
make make sense to me. But I, I've lit, I've heard about imperative declarative literally for years, and not one time has it ever made sense. I still have no mm-hmm. idea what. Even listening to the comments and what you're saying, how that translates <laughs> into actual code, don't get at all. Which I feel like is an important call out. Like I want to be really transparent in situations like that because I think a lot of people and I spent years being the same person too of hearing terms not knowing what they are and suffering from the very obvious imposter Mm -hmm. syndrome am I good enough am I just not as smart as these other people that do and this was especially true in college and part of that was me just not actually like doing the due diligence and studying and all these things or like trying to understand for more than just a test so I like to be really transparent when stuff like this comes up because I think it's important for me to be able to say confident in my career at this stage in my career to answer one of the previous questions, I graduated in 2013 and have been doing some form of development since then. Although the majority of my time has been in developer experience where I'm not working on production code. So I don't have that many years of production code experience, but I did a lot and understood a lot. And now like while I was there, but I think it's important for people in positions like I'm in my career to be able to say like, that the, those two words don't mean anything for me. Like they may mean something and become very important in an interview. And that may be something that you have to prepare for to be able to give those definitions because that's the interview. But the fact is like, I'm completely 100% confident saying I have no idea how imperative versus declarative actually influences code that I write. I have literally none. Well, this is okay. So I'll go back and answer that question <laughs> to it in my answer. So I've been coding since I was 16. So I've been coding for 22 years. You can do the math. So I, <laughs> things change. <laughs> I can't help <laughs> so I'm it. a grandmother. I'm a grandmother <laughs> when it comes to internet things. But I also want to point out like, I've never, I, I maybe had to write a sorting function when I was in college for something, but I've never used that in any of the work stuff that I've done. I've always just reached for a library like underscore or something like that. But for mm-hmm. me to have been in the industry that long and not have to write all those algorithms that people talk about, like that says something. It, but some of it's the type of coding that I do is different, but it also makes you think like, what kind of programming are you going to do? Do you really have to go through is it leak codes and figure out all these logarithms and pieces of information no some of it just depends did i say the wrong word i've been trying to say it so confidently that was probably a problem so for everybody out there i have an issue with the word a logarithm and algorithm in my head i always thought it was potato potato which you could like if you're specifically (laughs) and i had to look this up too logarithm is like an algorithm, I think, that deals with exponents specifically versus algorithm, I think, is I probably think. what you're it's what you're looking years, for. But it, years of misprogramming. But, so, uh, anyways, to the, but the to point the is, it doesn't matter. Making, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, that's yeah. I was gonna emphasize matter. that as well. Absolutely. Like there, the unfortunate thing I think <laughs> is that it does matter in interviews, and and that kind of sucks because, mm-hmm. like, again, declarative versus imperative. I'm comfortable telling you doesn't make any difference with the code that I write unless I specifically need to. And if I need to, I'll adjust. But like right now, it doesn't matter. But in an interview, you might get that question. And if you're looking for your first job, I don't think you can go in and say, it doesn't matter. I don't need to know that because James told me, right? So there are like specific situations where you just have to practice for interviews. And that is an unfortunate reality sometimes. The best part about that was you just sitting there letting me go on and then you just smirked. <laughs> just oh, no, I, I had the face from the beginning. I was just waiting for you to, <laughs> for you to realize. 
<laughs> I was trying to be confident. I was like, surely if I do confidence, then it'll. I know. Well, <laughs> and but also if you said that, like most people are just <sighs> not gonna care. Well, I think it is good. I mean, it doesn't matter. But for people to know, also, I don't. To me, that's like a joke. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. there is something else that is like a longstanding joke. The fact that you don't write, you've never written a check. <clears throat> yes. Um, I couldn't even tell you. There's so many lines I'm, and spaces and I don't even know what to do. Uh, I know we're gone way over, but I yeah. did at least want to highlight one more question because I think I can answer it kind of quickly. <laughs> we'll see. Potentially. Uh, Fit Apaldi said, as a self-learner, when do you think is the right time to start applying for jobs? Before you're ready is the easiest answer because as soon as you go to an interview, and they ask you a question and that you don't know, that's great because then you're going to go home and you're going to learn the answer and you'll know it for the next interview. And so you only get that experience through actually going through the interview process. And I had a friend a long, long time ago that told me that they were, they had been advised to interview for a new job like every two years, every five years, even if you didn't plan on taking that job, just mm-hmm. so that you could go through the interview process and stay up to date on all that. So I think that might be a little bit much because you are maybe dragging somebody along that you want a job. Maybe just make it clear (laughs) before you get too far in the process, what you're looking for and what you want. But it is a good point just in terms of interviewing is a skill set. And unfortunately, it's a skill set that you have to be good at if you want a certain type of job. And like you mentioned, two to five years, I I was like the extreme of that, I think is like six months. Like you should be interviewing every six months. And Mm -hmm. I think there's, there is like a, a little bit of a question, I think, of like wasting people's time. Um, so, so definitely be cognizant of that. Like, don't do it. Well, I, like don't I was going to say, don't do it. Step. Yeah. I, to yeah, me, I'm it's not fine sure. as long as you're not down to like the final two. <laughs> and you're like, oh, sorry. I didn't want this job. Well, but like, I don't, yeah, that's actually interesting because it's tough to, it's one of those things that you can't get better at if you don't do. So you have to do, but it mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean you take every job you get offered. Well, so and to I, your point, there's different types of interviews at different levels. And yes. that's also beneficial to experience those. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in terms of one of the things I think you can gauge is like, do you have two portfolio projects that you're proud of? I personally recommend people learning full stack, like building a full stack CRUD application that you're proud of. I think regardless of uh, front end versus back end. I think under like if you do front end, understanding the back end makes you a better front end developer and vice versa. It makes you a better teammate. It makes you more open to more job opportunities. So I think that is is a significant plus. The caveat to that is if you definitively know I want to do front end development, dive all into that and make something like really beautiful and and whatever. But I recommend people have two full stack projects that you can talk about confidently and that show your skills. So I go back to I do this all the time. The web developer bootcamp by Cold Steel. If regardless of if you take that, if you look at the topics on there and if you understand the topics that are there and you can explain those and talk about them verbally, you're a hundred percent ready to Amy's point though. Like you, I, not many people get to a point in their career for their first job. They're like, I'm definitively ready to go have an interview. Like you're probably not going to feel that. So go and force yourself to see, like start applying for things and use every outcome as a learning opportunity to influence. Like where do I then spend time? Going forward, what do I need to get better at? Do I need to understand more backend? Do I need to do data structures and algorithms? Do I need to learn imperative versus declarative programming? Who knows? But use that or as like insight. Or how to say insights. a logarithm. Or how to, <laughs> how to do all, logarithms and 
other algorithms. algorithms. <laughs> <laughs> Just use that as the thing that's going to help encourage you. And if you have like, if you find a community, again, we talk about this a lot that you trust to like share, hey, here's a portfolio project. Does this look like a solid thing that I can talk about in an interview? Get feedback on that and use use that to then influence again. Like, do I need to do more? But until you put yourself out there to the point where you can get that feedback, you'll never know. You'll probably never feel ready and you'll probably waste a lot of time not applying when you could have. You laughing at Eric? Uh, sorry, Eric. <laughs> I'm going to start calling him Eric so I don't forget now. This is an absolutely great problem to have because we have ongoing questions and we... I know. We just need to do this more often. We do. Akshay said to prepare for big tech interviews on mastering DSA, data structures, algorithms. Can I also work on on development projects? If so, what kind will impress and land a job? Can you work on that at the same time as studying data structures and algorithms? Absolutely. What types of projects are going to impress? Again, to get down to a very specific answer, it's things that show your skills and experience and the technologies that that company is going to be using or transferable skills. So Mm -hmm. I recommend full stack projects. I recommend people understand how the front end and the back end interact with each other, how you interact with a database, mentally and verbally being able to explain, here's the decisions that I made and why, and here's some of the trade-offs. And here's how, if I know this framework, how it translates conceptually to another framework. Those are the things that really stick out to me. So that those portfolio projects should address those things and be ones that you're proud and excited to talk about and comfortable talking about in detail Mm -hmm. in your interviews. Yeah. That last piece, I just want to like underline, highlight, tattoo it on James's forehead. (laughs) It's so good because when I, whenever I've conducted interviews, that's what I've said. I can see your portfolio when it comes to design. I can see the work that you've created when it comes to code. I can read your code. I understand how all of it works, but explain it to me because at least at Zeal, where we're an agency, I want to know how you're going to talk to a client about the decisions that you're making. And that doesn't always get communicated in a GitHub repo or even in a portfolio. So if you can talk through those things, then that helps me know that you truly do understand what you did and you didn't just copy and paste or have ChatGPT write it. So yeah. I, that those are the things that I'm looking for. Yep, absolutely. Well, this is going to wrap up our all the questions and all the answers episode we sincerely appreciate having all of the participation Mm -hmm. and questions these are legitimately fun for myself i think amy and i are on the same page with this like we really enjoy (laughs) being able to provide feedback and responses and hopefully value to people with questions and anyway we enjoy it thank you all for participating if you're listening to the podcast version of this make sure to leave a rating review to help other people find the podcast so that we can continue to do these episodes and bring on amazing guests to talk about more in the tech industry. In the meantime, that's all we got.